Good afternoon and welcome. This is an encore edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest today has written one of the most thoughtful and insightful books on the subject of racial inequality that I have read in a long, long time. Heather McGee is the former head of a think tank, Demos, an organization that focuses on inequality. She is now the chair of the board of Color of Change, an online racial justice advocacy group with 7 million members. Her book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. McGee's reporting is assiduous and compassionate. She explores the history and lunacy of policies and norms that proliferate belief in a racial hierarchy. This insidious allegiance to racial hierarchy has dominated the United States since its founding. No aspect of American life is spared and no issue has been unaffected. McGee makes the case that white unwillingness to align with black people in common cause has not only been crushing for African Americans, but for millions of white people struggling for opportunity as well. She writes, quote, America's racial inequality is the template that sets up a scaffolding of hierarchy that increasingly few people of any race can climb. The sum of us also makes the case that the reasons for racial panic among white people are actually our biggest strategic assets and our country's greatest salvation. I was very moved by the argument and the grace of this book. Heather McGee joined us on Zoom. Heather, welcome. Um, thank you so much for saying those lovely things. I'm really, I'm moved. All right, let's <laughs> talk. Okay. Well, now that we're both moved, uh, yeah, let's let's jump in because I really was very, very taken with this book. The uh, the other book that I would put this um, in the same league, and this is high praise, um, is a book by Carol Anderson called White Rage. Um, and Carol and I talked about that when it came out. You know, I don't know, four or five years ago, um, because it's it's there's tremendous and wonderful original thinking and great reporting. So. One of the, the central tenets is that this, this narrative um, that uh, white people should see the, well, the well-being of people of color, and this is what you write early in the book, this narrative that the well-being of people of color is a threat uh, is one of the most powerful subterranean stories in America. So talk about how, you know, since the time of slavery, that subterranean story has taken hold? Well, Tom, I wrote this book not actually to necessarily write another book about racial inequality, although I think there are many dimensions of it that we still haven't explored, um, but really to try to answer the question of what, what's wrong with us? What, why is the country with the largest economy on the planet unable you know, to keep the lights on in Texas? Why are we unable to save the lives of 500,000 people? And why do we have one of the highest infection and mortality rates in the globe? And, and what, what is going on? Why does it seem like we have such a poor representative democracy? Why does it seem like we can't provide universal health care or wages that keep workers out of poverty? What, what's wrong with us? What are we doing? Why are we so dysfunctional? Why can't we, as I say at the outset of the book, just have nice things? And it was through that question that I really hit upon the zero sum as one of the most compelling 
possible answers for why we can't seem to have nice things. Because instead of feeling like we're all on one team, where we're rooting for one another, where, you know, we're in a huddle and we're we're making a plan and we go out there and we get all of our best players, we're sidelining so many of our own players. We're actually hamstringing so many of, on, of our own players. And that means, of course, we're being held back as a society. And so I thought, okay, where does this zero-sum view, this us versus them, come from? It is something that uh, a whole bunch of social scientists that I talked to identified as a sort of perennial part of American politics. It's on the rise, though, in the Trump era uh, and as it was under the Obama era. And it's something that is held as a worldview, this us versus them, progress for you has to come at my expense, is a much more prevalent idea among white Americans than it is people of color. And so that's when I said, okay, this isn't just human nature. This is a story that somebody is telling for their own profit. Um, and I want to know why, where it came from. And that's when exactly, Tom, I had to go back to the beginning of our of our history and determine when we created this zero-sum racial hierarchy, the idea that, you know, there was going to be extraction by white people from the wealth, the land, the bodies of people of color, and we were not going to be on the same team. There's going to be profit on one side, loss on the other. That's really where it began, was when our with our original economic model in this country of stolen people, stolen land, and stolen labor. Yeah, and um, when we think about those people who founded the country, uh, low those many years ago, you make the point that um, their social position, their economic position in Europe, where they came from in large measure, um, was very different, and the mm-hmm. the hierarchy. Uh, helped them define themselves as better. Uh, It wasn't just other, it was better. And that was really important. That's right. Because in the beginning of of our country, in the colonial era, most of the white people who came here didn't have much, right? They were indentured servants, uh, they were not even actually conceived of as white. They were thought of as Christian. They were thought of as European from the various European nations. And yet at the time when it became clear that Black African chattel slavery was going to be the primary economic model, that actually stealing and importing people and forcing them to work without pay was the, going to be the most profitable way to to fund the colonies and to extract wealth out of this land, then it became clear that there were sort of two options. Either the white landless servants could join with the African servants that they were often working side by side with and do what they actually did uh, in to colonial Virginia in something, a moment called Bacon's Rebellion, which was a, a cross-racial servant uprising that burned the capital of colonial Virginia to the ground and was, um, you know, potentially a lot of historians call it sort of the first revolution, or they could do what ended up happening or history could turn the way it did in the wake of Bacon's Rebellion, which was that the colonial elite said, no, 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 we can't have all of these people who toil taking up arms against us because there are far more of them than there are of us. And so they created these laws to legislate a hierarchy of human value between white and black. 
it was just these little pernicious ways that white people's servitude would be limited. Black people's would be forever. Black people were not allowed to own property. The, the, the colony confiscated the property of black people and actually gave it to uh, the poor white people in, in the colony. Those kinds of things that then created what we sort of often assume was kind of always the case, right? This, this legislated white supremacy, but it was a choice, it was reaction to the potential for cross-racial solidarity. And, and that's what's happened really ever since, is that the ruling elite has used the, the crumbs of white supremacy, the small privileges of whiteness, as a way to convince the masses of white people to side with their race instead of their class. And that's why our economy is poor, our middle class is weaker, our labor unions are weaker um, than, than they are in other societies with more solidarity. Yeah, you talk about the wages of whiteness and how that is often, uh, the, it, it is often the case that we're seeing people, you know, act in ways that is just not in their own self-interest. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's fascinating. Heather McGee is my guest. The book is terrific. It's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. I'm Tom Hall. You're listening to Midday. Um, and of course, as we um, move up in, in history, we get to the 19th century, uh, the Civil War. It's not just the South, um, where obviously the economy is uh, very much uh, completely molded around uh, chattel slavery and and free labor. Um, you you uh, report something I never knew. Uh, the mayor of New York in mm-hmm. the 1860s advocated seceding along mm-hmm. with the South because all of the brokers in New York were brokers for Southern cotton and Southern okay. goods. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. There is a myth that slavery was a, a Southern institution and that it did not, it wasn't as, as central to the entire American economy. I grew up, I went to school for a time in Massachusetts and we learned all of this lore about the mills, the textile mills that really made sort of New England's economy in the pre-Civil War period. And what I didn't realize, even I, the descendant of, of Black enslaved people, didn't make the connection that what were they milling in these textile mills? They were milling Southern cotton, right? Yeah. <laughs> Somehow that- Had to get totally it from somewhere. The history, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. um, shockingly, a Southern Poverty Law Center uh, study from a few years ago found that only 8% of high school seniors knew that slavery was a primary cause of the U.S. Civil War, right? So much of our history has been robbed from us, Tom. And and the reason why each of my chapters uh, in The Sum of Us includes a little bit of history, not a lot, but a little bit of history, is because, you know, we're a very young country. We only have a couple hundred years of slavery, of, excuse me, of, that was a nice Freudian slip, yeah. of, <laughs> of history to learn. And if we don't learn our history, then we can't, A, recognize when similar forces are trying to manipulate us today, and B, it means we come up with false solutions for the problems that we face. I particularly think about this in terms of the economy. How do we explain the disinvestment and the poverty in Black neighborhoods? How do we explain the fact that there are Black neighborhoods, period, and white neighborhoods? 
when we don't know the degree to which the government in the 20th century explicitly racially segregated us, drew lines around our communities and said, this is where you can lend, this is where you cannot lend, this is who's allowed to own property, this is who's not allowed to own property. Then it's you really have to understand that in order to understand the racial economic divide today. Otherwise you, you put it on the backs of people not working hard enough or not going to school and all of that is false. And we see how easy it is for people um, of prominence and and others to, you know, purposely, maliciously malign uh, even very recent history. I mean, we've got Mr. Trump and the big lie about the election. We've got mm. Senator Johnson from Wisconsin just rewriting what happened just two months ago mm. at the Capitol, just saying, you know, mm. what we all saw with our own eyes wasn't really what was happening. It was a totally different thing. Those people were, you know, well motivated and they loved law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. And this is something that just happened two months ago, not not a hundred years ago or two hundred mm-hmm. years ago. It's just it's wild. And you also make the correlation and the, the 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 point, which I think is really important, that a propensity for racial intolerance, a a proclivity for this zero sum narrative, thinking that for for black people to get ahead as a white person, uh, I have to lose something. Um, the the that propensity and that racism correlates directly to uh, lack of confidence in the role of government and the the capacity of government to be a force for good in people's lives. I mean, it, it it's not just that it's a you know the it's morally abhorrent, um, but it it leads to thought that is self-destructive um, and certainly not just self-destructive for those individuals, but destructive for all of us in society. And and there's a direct link between people who are racists and pe- people who don't think government is worth anything and, uh, you know, needs to be nuked and, you know, blown up and dispensed with, essentially. That's exactly right. And I do want to make the case that Um, as I do in The Some of Us, that it wasn't always this way. You know, the American middle class, the largely white American middle class, was built by aggressive government intervention, by free stuff, by handouts, by subsidized housing and uh, federally backed mortgages, by no down payment loans, by the incredible government largesse and regulation in the interest of working people who were white and at the exclusion of Black families. There's a part in my book where I just sort of list all the free stuff that helped make the white middle class from the Homestead Act, which was a grant of of property for free, uh, save like a filing fee, um, through to the GI Bill, which was supposed to be race neutral, but because of segregation in the mortgage market and in in schools, ended up serving far fewer Black GIs and veterans that were eligible than than should have received it. And so it used to be that white Americans were the most pro-government people you could find. Um, In fact, in 1956 and 1960, I write, the vast majority, nearly 70% of white Americans thought that the government ought to guarantee a job for everyone who wanted one and guarantee a minimum income in the country. And between 1960 
1964, that support among white Americans plummeted from nearly 70% to just 35%. And it stayed relatively low ever since. When I saw that data, Tom, I was like, okay, what, what is wrong? Is there something wrong with my, my spreadsheet here? And then I realized, no, what happened between 60 and 64? 1963, the March on Washington, which for, was for jobs and freedom and included those two public policy demands, those economic guarantees. And it was clear that black people wanted them too. 1963, Kennedy went on a media campaign associating the Democratic Party with the cause of civil, civil rights. And then of course, we know that his successor would ultimately be the last Democrat to win the majority of the white vote. You began to see white Americans en masse turning their backs on the formula that had created the white middle class just because it became clear that that formula would be expanded to include black and brown people to include everyone who contributed to this nation's prosperity. Heather McGee is the author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. We'll have more with Heather McGee after a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. You're listening to Midday. Stay with us. Tom Hall. If you've just joined us today on this archive edition of Midday, my guest is Heather McGee. We're talking about her new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Our program was recorded earlier, so we can't take any new calls or online comments. So Heather, in your various chapters, you take up uh, particular issues, uh, education, housing, climate change, voting rights, uh, and how this zero-sum narrative has, uh, you know, been such a, a deleterious, uh, had such a deleterious effect on all of these various issues. Um, and there's a great metaphor for this, which you write about, uh, and that has to do with community pools. So talk about what was going on in the 1950s in places like uh, the Oak Park Pool in Montgomery, Alabama, or uh, cities in Ohio. I mean, it was all over the country. It's not just in the South. Um, mm -hmm. And the, and and why that metaphor is just so, so perfect. You know, Tom, it goes back to what we were talking about right before the break and the way that white Americans turned away from government as a force for good in the economic life of our people when it became clear that government was going to also benefit Black people and not just white. And so that's why this metaphor is so central to my book. In the 1930s and 40s, the country went on a building boom of public amenities. It was part of this New Deal era of this ethos that the government should help maintain and create a high standard of living for its people. That was how we were going to measure our success. And so we had public schools, libraries, parks, and yes, swimming pools, but these weren't any kind of swimming pools. These were, in fact, grand resort style pools, and they were um, built with public tax dollars, and they often held over a thousand swimmers. But in many places in the country, including actually in Baltimore, I tell the story in the book of Tommy Cummings, one of the um, Black 
boys who, who drowned in the Patapsco River, if I'm pronouncing Patapsco right, um, because uh, he wanted to swim with his one black friend and two white friends and there was no pool, public pool in the city that allowed for interracial swimming. And so they had to swim in that open waterway and he drowned. And after that, and as part of a wave of, of civil rights advocacy across the country, black families began to sue often through the NAACP saying, those are our tax dollars funding these public pool pools. Our children should be able to swim in them as well. And as they begin to win, white dominated and usually exclusively white run cities and towns across the country faced a choice. Would they allow for integration and let black kids swim in the shallow end and dive into the deep end as well? Or what would they do? And so many of them across the country decided to drain their public pools rather than integrate them. So that meant that everybody lost out. Black kids never got to swim in a public pool. White families lost what was once a public good. Then wealthier white families began to start these membership only private swim clubs in the DC area. Over a hundred of them cropped up in the years after pool integration. And then you started to see backyard swimming pools of the kind we now know in the suburbs. But the loss of what was once a public good, when I went to Montgomery, Alabama, um, to this park in the middle of the city called Oak Park, that used to be really the central park, the sort of meeting place of Montgomery. And now it's just this vacant, uh, empty expanse. You know, the pools, the park still exists, but they had shut down the pool uh, in the wake of integration in 1959. They drained it and, and filled it with dirt, seeded it over. Not only in Montgomery did they drain the pool and close Oak Park, but they kept the entire Parks and Recreation Department closed for a decade in order to avoid integration. The reason why I talk today about drained pool politics is that it feels like that's what's happened to our entire economy. As we've only had the public will for tax cuts and spending cuts that have driven up the private costs that working and middle-class families of all races have to bear instead of funding them publicly because in really the, the sort of determining factor in our politics towards this, this move away from government, this move away from public goods has been white voters who have been much more anti-government since the civil rights movement than they were before it. Heather McGee, the book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. And this, uh, this, this onerous um, disease of racism, uh, when it does infect uh, particular areas of the country, you make a, a really strong and important argument that particularly in the South, the Confederate states, uh, after slavery was abolished, they had not begun to develop the kind of infrastructure that the North had uh, in terms of, you know, the basic economic fundaments that um, the Northern economy was able to uh, enjoy. So yeah. they were behind and they lag behind to this day. That, that the South, there's a, there's a difference um, when we look at education rates, when we look at, um, you know, medium incomes and that kind of stuff. That, that lagging behind of the South versus or compared to the North, 
continues to this moment. That's exactly right. Um, and, and specifically, interestingly, a uh, professor at Harvard named Nathan Nunn found that it isn't just broadly South versus North. The inequality in um, and lower and higher rates of poverty, lower per capita incomes actually drills down into a county by county analysis of the South that the counties with slavery have lower per capita incomes today than the ones without slavery. So this is the logic, right? I had to sort of unpack this in the course of figuring out how these two things are connected. If you have a ruling elite, let's call them the plantation class, that um, as, as, as that Southerner you talked about, Hinton Rowan Helper was his name. He was this white abolitionist racist Southerner. If you, can, if you can hold all those ideas in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he was someone who had no special love for Black people. He, he believed in white supremacy, but he thought that the plantation system where a narrow ruling white elite had an economic system that was basically so unequal that it subjugated the interests of white free Southerners to the ruling class because you didn't, the ruling class didn't have to include the white non-ruling class in government decision-making, um, could suppress the votes of, of, of white and uh, obviously, you know, black and slave people had no vote um, and didn't have to fund what rich people in most societies tend to think they have to fund in order to maintain their profits, which is, you know, the commons, right? There's an idea you need an effectively funded commons in order to have a, a customer base, in order to have educated workers, in order to have markets to, to get your goods to, to market. And in the plantation economy, none of that was strictly necessary because you had this captive labor force the the cotton was being milled by a wage labor force in the north and then sold overseas and so he counted the number of libraries schools and and parks that were public in slave states versus free states and found this tremendous disparity it's that core logic does our ruling class do the people who are absolutely doing fantastically well with the economic status quo want to invest in the public good? And can they convince the majority of white people to turn away from the public good as well? That has really been, for me, the story of the last 50 years. In the wake of the civil rights movement, as we've seen the economic inequality in our country climb, as we've seen unions get weaker, as we've seen tax cuts stand in for public spending, as we've seen college go from something that the government used to pay for to something that the government is paying the minority of in terms of state governments. The majority of states are paying less of the share of their own public colleges than students are in tuition, and that we've moved from grants to loans. And then, of course, the one of the biggest examples of this sort of shortchanging of, of the public goods is our failure to have truly universal public health care or a public health system to handle pandemics. Yeah, and and, and you're right that public policy created these problems, uh, and to a large extent, it's going to take public policy to fix these problems. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in 1971, you remind us, this is, what, seven years after the Civil Rights Act, 
Um, the Supreme Court gave its blessing to these communities that were draining their pools to avoid integration. Um, they closed their public schools after Brown v. Board just mm-hmm. rather than integrate them. And now, mm-hmm. so we have this whole series of private schools, you know, popping up. Uh, as yep. you say, just like we have the whole uh, phenomenon of, of individual swimming pools in people's mm-hmm. houses instead of community gathering places. Um, and you mentioned education. Um In 1947, just a couple of years after the Second World War, half of U.S. college admissions were veterans. Uh, And by 1976, 30 years later, um, the state governments were providing six of $10 for the cost of attending public colleges. And here's where this um, correlation between racial resentment and uh, general uh, opposition to government spending kicks in because now, by, by by the 90s, by the beginning of 1991, the average cost of a public public college education had tripled. Mm-hmm. And of course, plenty of white people couldn't afford it either. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it just became prohibitive. Um, mm-hmm. And so when there's this lack of support for government subsidies for education uh, or housing in the in the uh, form of the GI Bill, uh, as you mentioned, that was you know just so inequitably distributed between black and white former soldiers. Um, it just it wrecks the whole system. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when that is the core, the subtitle of the Some of Us is what racism costs everyone and how we can prosper together. Um, we did a project that at Demos, the organization that I used to run, that we never finished and released, but it was sort of, you know, you have kind of a skunk works, right, where you're just sort of throwing things on the wall and seeing seeing if they stick. And one of them was, let's calculate all of the different costs that your average middle class family has to pay for out of pocket. The health care, the retirement savings, the college, the child care, the daycare, right, all of these things that in other societies is funded publicly through taxes. And let's put the tab of all of that into our current tax system and say, okay, taxes would absolutely have to increase if we were to make those public goods instead of private costs. But how much would the average middle-class family save if they could, if we could fund them publicly, if we believed in one another and trusted one another enough to fund these things publicly instead of trying to fund them out of our own back pocket individually. And it was tens of thousands of dollars a year, right? It just is costing too much, this system of going it alone. And that's why as I traveled the country, as I did to research and write The Some of Us, I found all of these different examples of what I began to call the solidarity dividend. And that's the these gains that we can unlock if we work together and look for common solutions to our common problems. But we can only achieve them if we link arms across race, right? Keeping us divided and politically uh, isolated and, and, and opposed to common solutions to our common problems is weakening the public will for the kinds of gains that could come through a solidarity dividend. Things like higher wages, cleaner air, better funded schools. It's gonna take all of us. And in fact, as the issues and problems in our society mount and become really more ones that our go it alone system is absolutely not equipped for. Look at Texas and its inability to have its disconnected grid with its cost cutting and deregulation. 
really handle what is going to be a, a much more frequent possibility of a, of a winter storm. This is this is we know, this formula, the zero sum go it alone formula, has really sort of reached its productive end, and it's time for us to start aiming for solidarity dividends across the board. Yeah, you know, the wisdom of the marketplace uh, was on great display in Texas just a few weeks ago. And as you say, um, so uh, compellingly, you got to be on the same page in order to turn the page. Mm -hmm. And that really is, you know, the crux of this. The book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. The author is my guest, Heather McGee. We'll have more with Heather McGee on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stick around. We will be right back. Welcome back. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, this is an encore edition of Midday. We're listening to a conversation with Heather McGee about her compelling and persuasive book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. As we were discussing just before the break, McGee observes that we've reached the productive and moral limit of the zero-sum economic model. Since the days of slavery, there's been a persistent contention that there exists a racial hierarchy, and the fear among many white people that gains for African Americans will only come at the expense of white people. McGee argues that the rewards of a society in which equality is true and sustainable are plentiful. She calls it the solidarity dividend. Our program was pre-recorded, so we aren't taking any new listener calls or online comments. So, Heather, when we talk about things like well, student loans, for example, and you write about your own situation, the money you had to borrow to go to undergraduate school and then to go to law school. Um, you report that there are uh, some 3 million senior citizens who owe $86 million in student loans. So they've been paying for it all of their adult lives. Um, and then you also observe... Um, the relationship between greed and racism. Mm -hmm. And you ask, what is racism without greed? Individual racism gives greedy people the moral per permission to exploit others in a way that they wouldn't do to people that they empathize with. Mm -hmm. So how do you see this balance between, you know, the sort of hearts and minds argument about institutional racism and individual racism and the the public policy part of it because it, it's not just as simple as let's tax the wealthy people uh, mm -hmm. a lot more and pay off everybody's student loans i mean mm -hmm. it's it's got to go deeper than that mm -hmm. um and and where do you see that tension and that balance that's such a good question tom um, you know, I've been really wrestling with this in many ways my, my whole career. I started out as a numbers person, as a policy advocate, someone who spent nearly 20 years helping to build and then run a think tank. Uh, and, and the tools of the trade there are research papers and congressional testimony and legislative drafting and lobbying. 
basically trying to bring the economic data to decision makers and have them make better economic policy decisions, which would help all of us. Disproportionately, it would help people of color who are already saddled with discrimination and disadvantage, but it would really help all of us. And yet I left that role, really my dream job running Demos, and, and set out on this journey across the country because I felt like, particularly in the wake of of the Trump, uh, of the beginning of the Trump presidency, that we were missing something, that there was this sort of iceberg blocking people from making rational economic decisions when it came to core questions of things like belonging and status and deservingness, and that those questions always seem to turn on race in this country. And that's where the, the relationship between the economics and the racism, the laws and the beliefs, it felt to me like I, I was sort of missing the belief part and, and missing the racism story in the economic story. And so I think we need to do both, right? Um, Dr. King, um, who really does have kind of a quote for everything um, I am finding um, <laughs> in his in his final book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, which folks should all read. Um, he says he talks about a law written on the heart. Right. So there are laws that can change. And obviously he was laser focused on changing these laws uh, around civil rights and voting rights and housing. Um, but, he, you know, he talked about the laws written on the heart. And it is true that if laws change, but beliefs don't, what we end up having is sort of what we've had, which is that a white majority or a majority of white people can still vote out of this thing that sociologists call racial resentment, which I think is in fact a, a more kind of nuanced way of explaining the way racism works in our politics and policymaking. It's not like, I don't want to sit next to you on the on a bus. It's I think that we're not all sort of equally hardworking. That black people are lazier, more likely to just want things from the government, and therefore um, should not be given those things from the government. Um, and I'm willing to forego those things myself as long as it means that they won't have them. And of course, this is a total of an inversion. Um, that's often the way racism works is is projection. This is a total projection of the way that when government has delineated its benefits based on race, it has been overwhelmingly to exclude black people and sure. to favor sure. white yeah. people. And yet, and even today, the majority of, of working class and low income people who are lifted out of poverty by government programs are white. The largest group of the uninsured and the impoverished are white, and yet there's this narrative. And, and I'm clear throughout the sum of us that we have to look at who's selling the story, not just who's buying it, but who's selling the story. And if you look at, at the right-wing media ecosystem and, and the right-wing political narrative, it is, it is driving that all the time. The takers and makers, the, the taxpayers and the freeloaders deriding what used to be public goods as, you know, handouts and free stuff, trying to alienate white people from the vehicles for collective action, whether they're labor unions or government, that can actually take on concentrated wealth and power in order to invest in our entire society. That's really the point. They're selling this story of racism for their own profit. And ultimately, as you look at 
the tens of millions of white Americans who are struggling to make ends meet, who are raising children in poverty, um, even the middle class and upper middle class white families that are shouldering the private costs for things that should be public goods. I'm just trying to, you know, do the math and reach the hearts and minds at the same time to show that it's it's not serving anyone. Heather McGee, the book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. And, you know, Heather, as a middle-aged white guy who thinks about this and inequality in particular um, a fair amount, who has conversations on this program about it very regularly, um, you make the very trenchant observation about how Often this whole issue, the makers and takers narrative, um, leads to this racialized coverage, this racialized understanding of any number of problems that we've had, like the subprime mortgage uh, crisis that that led to the problems in 2008 and 2009, this misperception that it was simply caused by a bunch of um, uh, irresponsible uh, borrowers who got in over their heads, uh, and it was their own fault. Uh, and so, of course, we have to bail out the banks, and we don't have to, you know, who who did what they could to, you know, guard against uh, these high risk loans by securitizing them, and uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, trying to make a profit on people who really, in many cases, couldn't afford the homes they were living in. Um, but it, it it was they were blind to the notion that the white guys could be the ones at fault here, uh, and that this lending was in fact predatory in so many instances. Um, so the way we we see this, and when I say we, I mean the royal we. You know, we as a country. Um, how is it that this makers and takers, uh, you know, freeloaders and hard worker, uh, that that paradigm? Um, how it how is it stuck so you know so rigidly and so uh, angrily and and acutely to the the under the the understanding that a lot of people share about how the country is working? You know, it's it's a daily it's a daily broadcast, right? So if you look at the coverage, for example, about poverty in America. Um, you know, research has, has shown that it's much more likely to have a black face, right? The images that are shown in addition to the, um, you know, star stories about poverty on the news or in newspapers and news magazines, um, even though the majority of people in poverty are white, right? We, we have this view that um, was, was created to justify slavery and discrimination, right? One of the big exercises I try to do in The Some of Us is is to put myself in the shoes of the people that I'm thinking about and writing about, right? You know, so often today we look back at the Jim Crow era and the era of explicit racial segregation and say, how could they have done that? They must have been evil people, right? They must have just been bad people and we would not have done the same thing. And I think that that's somewhat true, but it's also true that that lets us off the hook and and makes us ill-equipped to see where those same messages are are being used today, right? So if you think about, for example, 
the justification that was used for slavery, right? It's this idea that these people, A, enjoyed servitude, um, B, were not fit for anything better. Um, you think about the justification that was used to, um, to for by the federal government, the New Deal progressive federal government, to draw maps of the country in bright lines around black neighborhoods and say, these neighborhoods are not good risks, so we should not guarantee or backstop any of the loans to these communities. They draw drew bright do not lend lines around black neighborhoods. How could they possibly have done that, you could think? Well, there was the never substantiated idea that black people would of course be worse credit risks. And if you look at the run-up to the financial crisis, you had that exact same logic. Even today, if you look at the narrative around the subprime crisis, there is this false belief that Black borrowers were, were risky and therefore, you know, got in over their heads, as you said, Tom. But in fact, the majority of subprime loans went to borrowers with good credit. And Black and Brown borrowers were three times as likely as those as white borrowers with the same credit histories to get these subprime loans. The limit was not what people's credit scores was. The limit was how much they could get away with selling to borrowers. And they were usually existing homeowners who were getting refinance loans, not people who were striving to get into houses that they shouldn't have been able to afford. And in fact, all the speculation and the gambling and the irresponsibility that you saw was first on the part of Wall Street and second came later in, in the housing bubble when it was more white upper middle class people, you know, looking to, to find a, um, uh, you know, speculate on a second home and a third home and flip a house. Sure. And that's really the, the cost that we've all paid for racism. Yeah, Ronnie in Baltimore sends an email saying this conversation has made so many uh, logical connections about white resentment and the scarcity mindset. Uh, but my mind doesn't need to be changed. How do we change like my baby boomer Trumpist father? Uh, years of bad skewed news and propaganda has solidified his twisted view. Um, let's go to a, the phones. We, we are almost out of time. Mary, welcome to Midday with Heather McGee. What's your quick question and comment? Hi, Heather. Uh, I'm, first of all, I'm really enjoying this conversation, and I think it's very instructive. But uh, my comment is, I think we make a, a tactical error in casting this in uh, terms of black and white. I think that, let's say if we suggested reparations, but reparations were really free community college, prepaid community college tuitions for everyone. Then, now, you know, you're going to talk about, I know, the, the pool thing, but if everyone's, if everyone's education was risen, black, poor, white, people who felt wrong, whatever that filled in, that, to me, would... Uh, you know, your book is called The Sum of Us, and yeah. that would raise the sum of us. Yeah, Mary, thank you for that comment. Um, Heather, we'll give you a, a, a final 
uh, a final thought here uh, yeah, in terms of you know, the, how this gets branded, in, in other words, yeah. you know, how, how, what we call it. Yeah. Well, I think we have to do a few things. I think we should have free community colleges because that's not reparations. It's just getting back to a functioning system, right? We that's that's really just about the way we should run a country. Everybody else has learned that free college is the way to go from our example in the post-war period. We just need to do what we did before yeah. and not include anybody. But it's not about education that a, a white high school dropout has more wealth than a black college graduate. Race really does matter because of the way that history shows up in your wallet. It's not, it does we can't indeed. say that education is reparations because it's yeah. not about how much we educate And ourselves. we're going to have to leave it there. Yeah. This has really been great. Heather McGee, the book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I'm Tom Hall. This has been an archive edition of Midday. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. 